I invite you to bow your hearts with me and we'll go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, it is honor to call you Father. It is a great privilege to be able to stand before you knowing that even this moment you're sitting on the throne and you're listening to us, your children. Lord, it is a privilege to know that you have brought us near through the death of Christ. It is a great joy to experience that in our life that even now, As the world is panicking, we're able to have peace. We're able to have peace because you have reconciled us to yourself and you've given us Christ. No matter what happens to us, to our families, to this country, to this world, we are in your hand. And that is something that we can rest in. And this morning, as we go to this amazing passage of Scripture, I pray that you would remind us of where we were before our conversion, and what you have done for us and the future that you are preparing for us in heaven. I pray that that would encourage our hearts, that for the next few moments we're able to set aside all the things that so worry us, and we'll be able to focus on you. I pray for myself that you would give me grace to take us through this passage for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. We have your Bible. As Tim said, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. And as you wake in your, ma- your way there, I would like you to think for a moment of the greatest conflict you had or have in your life. Now, some of you don't have to think long and hard because the memory of such events are edged deep, deep into your mind. When we're talking about conflicts, we're talking about hostility. Now, hostility it ranges anywhere from simple annoyance all the way to murder. There are conflicts between individuals, conflicts between families, conflicts between churches, races, nations, and you can go on. Because we live in the world on the other side of Genesis 3, conflicts are inevitable. In the Garden of Eden, prior to the fall, there was no sin, and thus there was no conflict. But when Satan rebelled against God, him and third of the angels were thrown out of heaven. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, we read in Genesis that God has separated them and kicked them out of the garden. Disobedience to God created this conflict between God and man. Now, when I ask you to think just a moment ago about the greatest conflict you have in your life, I'm almost certain that you thought of a broken relationship between you and your spouse, or maybe you and your child or maybe you and your friend, or maybe your neighbor or some fellow man. But I'd like to remind you this morning that your greatest conflict is not between you and fellow man. The greatest conflict that you have in life is between you and your God. You know, it's safe to say that we live in the world where most people think of God as this genie in the bottle who exists for your well-being or at least so that he would prevent at least some of the evil in the world. I mean, very few think of God not as benevolent Santa who is in heaven there to take care of you, but as righteous judge who hates sin and who punishes sin. Because we all come from Adam, we have inherited his sinful nature. We have sinned against God. And because of that, we are sinners by position and we are sinners by practice. That's why 
the greatest conflict that we have is between us and God. As you know, when you are in conflict, you usually tend to think that it's the other person's fault. You usually wait for that other person to come along and reconcile with you. Now, it is true that in most conflicts, that is the case. But in our conflict with God, it's 100% our fault. God has not done anything, but it is all our fault. But the good news is that even though God is the offended party, even though we have sinned against God, we will see in our text that it is God who goes after us, and it is God who is seeking to reconcile men to himself. Now, last Sunday, we were in Colossians chapter 1, and we looked at verses 15 through 20. And we saw that Paul was exalting Christ, and he was arguing that Jesus deserves to be supremely treasured by all because he is supreme over all. In verse 20, Paul made an argument that you ought to worship Jesus, you ought to treasure Jesus because he is reconciler of all things. And we said last Sunday that at the end of the day, all things will be reconciled to God. Some will submit to God voluntarily by bowing their knees to Christ and confess Him as their Savior and Lord. Others will submit involuntarily when they're forced to declare that Jesus is a righteous judge and Lord. And when Paul laid the foundation in verse 20 by saying that all things will be reconciled to God through Christ, now in our verses he gets very specific and he talks about how that reconciliation applies specifically to his readers his readers in the church of Colossae. In verses 21 through 23 are the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning. Paul explains how God reconciled them to himself through Jesus Christ. The reason why Paul includes these verses in this letter is because Paul was concerned for believers in Colossae. He knew of others who have professed to know Christ, who have professed to believe gospel And then walked away. You remember the letter to the churches in Galatia. Paul came there. Paul preached the gospel to them. They have accepted the gospel. And then false teachers came. They began preaching heresies to them. And people have turned on that. And Paul did not want that to happen in this church. And that's why in this passage, Paul reminds them of what God has done for them. And at the same time, he reminds them of their responsibility. As we look at our three verses this morning, here's my main point. This is what I want you to walk away from with from the sermon. Reconciliation with God must be demonstrated by active perseverance in the faith. Reconciliation with God must be demonstrated by active perseverance in the faith. Now, in order for us to unpack this statement, I want us to consider three realities that Paul presents us with in these verses. First, we're going to look at your past state before your reconciliation. That'll be in verse 21. Then in verse 22, Paul is going to describe your future state, what you will be. And then in verse 3, he talks about your present state. So your past state, your future state, and your present state. Now, to put it a different way, you can say, number one, what you were before you were reconciled to God. Number two, what you will be as a result of being reconciled to God. And number three, what you are to be now that you have been reconciled to God. 
Join me as I begin reading in verse 13 and we'll read through verse 23. Paul writes, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. We begin with verse 21 and we're going to look at your past state. Sometimes you begin to appreciate what you have only after you lose it. I know some people who about their jobs and now when they're sitting at home with no job, they wish that they can go back and work. You see, good news is not so good when you don't realize the bad news. In this passage, before Paul tells us the good news, he tells us the bad news. He tells us what you were before you, reconciled, before you were reconciled to God, before he tells you the results of being reconciled to God. We know this from life. If, say, today, scientists discover a cure for coronavirus, I mean, that's good news. But if you're in the hospital, or your spouse, or your parent, or your child on a ventilator, that's the really good news. You see, when it's something way out there, it's, it's all right, it's good. But when it affects you, it is a really good news. And so what Paul will do in this passage in verse 21, he's going to take the Colossians back to their pre-conversion days. And he's going to explain to them what they were before they were reconciled to God. So what was your state before you were reconciled to God? Notice a couple observations here. First of all, he says in verse 21, notice this word, although you were formerly, formerly alienated. This is the pre-conversion state of all unbelievers. Before you were saved, this is what you were. Notice second, that is this word you is plural here. He says, although you, it's plural, not just few single and few individuals in the church. No, he's saying all of you, no matter who you are, no matter your status, no matter your position, all of you were in this state. Description of all unbelievers. Why? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is born Christian, but you have to be born again to become Christian. 
Now, Paul describes their pre-conversion state in terms of their position, in terms of their mindset, and in terms of their practice. Let's look at them one at a time. First of all, as to your position before your reconciliation, he says you were separated from God. Look at the end of verse 21. He says, and although you were formerly alienated. Now, first and foremost, sin separates people from God. As I mentioned, when Satan sinned against God, he was immediately cast out of heaven. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, immediately after fall, we read in Genesis 3.24, it says, The Lord drove the men out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed a cherubim, and a flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Isaiah the prophet, speaking to a singing nation, says in Isaiah 59.1, He says, behold, the Lord's hand is not sure that he cannot save, nor is his ear dull that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. You see, as a result of the fall, men are alienated from God. And this is faith as we see in this verse of all men. Now before conversion, or before uh, the writing of this letter, we know that God began to work with people. The nation of Israel were God's chosen people. He has taken those people for himself and he brought them near. You look at the church in Colossae. Most of the believers in the church were Gentiles. When Paul was writing into the same context to Gentile believers, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says that the Gentiles were at that time before conversion separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see, there are no innocent unbelievers. Everyone is guilty before God. And in order for you to be brought in, God needs to show you mercy. But Paul says here, without God reaching out to you before your conversion state, he says you were under God's wrath. You were alienated. You were separated from God. And as a result of that, you were without hope and you were without God in the world. But notice that those who are alienated from God are not neutral because Secondly, he talks about the mindset of those who are alienated from God. And their mindset, he says here, it is hostile to God. Verse 21 again, he says, you were alienated from God and you were hostile in mind. Now, most people would not necessarily take offense to the fact that sin separates people from God. However, when you say that all people, regardless of their age, regardless of how morally good they are, They are all hostile to God before conversion. You're taking it to the next level. You're saying that all people, regardless of how good they are or how good they might seem, they're all enemies of God. Notice Paul says here that this is a default position of an unbeliever, to be hostile toward God. Now, this hostility toward God has different range. It ranges in degrees. But it is hostility nonetheless. No matter who you are and how good you are, he says, before your conversion, you are an enemy of God. When he's speaking to believers in Rome, Romans chapter 5, verse 10, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Notice that even in that verse, 
Paul includes himself. He says, we all were enemies of God before we were reconciled to God. Notice, as God's enemies, we're not only alienated from God, but we are also aligned with devil. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, he says this, and, old, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And then notice Paul includes himself again, and he says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is who we were. Unbelievers, he says, they're sons of disobedience who walk after the desires of their father. Jesus speaking to religious leaders who wanted to murder him. In John 8, 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Now, because of the common grace, this hostility does not always reach those murderous stages as it was in the case of Jesus, but it is still there. In Romans chapter 6, Paul draws further distinction between believers and unbelievers. And he says in verse 6, he says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. And then he adds this, For it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They have no ability. Notice they're separated from God. They hate God, and they can't help themselves. They can't do otherwise. They are not able to do it. And notice that the primary manifestation of hostility toward God is that their lack of subjection to God. He says they're hostile toward God, and they do not subject themselves to the law of God. This is the default setting of all unbelievers. This is where, how they're born, and this is how they live before God does something in them. Now, this tells us that we shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers. Because Paul tells us this is their default state, and this is how they act. Now, it's interesting. This word mind is very interesting here. It says when they're hostile in mind, it is something trans, sometimes translated as understanding. Sometimes you can read it as thoughts. Now notice where their problem is. He says their problem is in their mind. Now we live in a world that does not believe this or understand this. And there are many examples of this. Perhaps one of the vivid illustrations of this in our culture is the issue that we run in more and more. And that is this issue of transgenderism. We have a small segment in our society that thinks that their problem is with their body. And the rest of the people or the rest of the culture is buying into that. They think that if, if only I can change something about my body. I am someone else, but I have a different body. If only I can do something. If only I can change myself on the outside somehow in some way, then everything is going to be fine. Now, Paul looks at this. Same people who struggled with exactly the same thing. And Paul says to you, listen, your problem is not your body. Your problem is your hostile mind that does not want to subject itself to the law of God. And unless you do that, nothing ever will be fine. You cannot mutilate your body. You cannot change your outward appearance and think that that is going to solve your problem. Your problem is not in your body. And if you try to do that, you will just compound the problem because then you have a problem not only with your mind, but also with your body. No wonder 
Statistics say that those people who struggle with that, at least teens, at least 42% of them have attempted to commit suicide. Notice Paul says that positionally, you are separated from God and your mind is depraved. You are hostile to God in your mind. But not only that, notice Paul keeps going. He says you are alienated from God. You are hostile in your mind and as to your practice, he says you engage in evil deeds. Now this is just outworking of hostile mind. This is a natural progression. Hostility of mind manifests itself in evil actions. You know, Jesus was clear about this. In Mark chapter 7, he said this, verse 21, he says, from, from within, out of the heart of man proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. What you are on the inside, your mind and your heart will make its way on the outside. Again, similar writing, Paul writes to a church in Ephesus. Similar context, same Gentiles. And notice how Paul describes progression there. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, he says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. Unbelievers, people before their conversion, also walk. And notice how they walk. In futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. With greediness. Notice their first problem is that they walk in futility of their mind and they're darkened in their understanding. Their mind is not functioning. Their mind is not submitted to God's law. And as a result of that, he says, they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. Because of the state of your mind, because of the state of your heart, you are engaged in evil deeds. And notice that unbelievers are not just doing that because they're forced to and they can't do anything about it. No, they love it. They love it. John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. And what was the result? But men loved darkness because their deeds were evil. Men are in this state and they love it. They hate God and they love sin. They don't come to the light. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. So you're separated from God, you hate God, and you commit evil. Now you might listen to this and say, well, that's a scary state to be in. And Paul says, yeah, exactly. That is where you were. That is where all of us have been before our conversion. You see, it is good for us to ponder sometimes where God has taken us from so that we can appreciate what we have now in Christ. And that's what Paul begins here. He says, this was your story. This is who you were. But aren't you glad that he doesn't stop there? There's this beautiful word in verse 22 that starts with yet. Yet. Although this was you, yet. And this is where we come to our second point. And we talk about our future state. Look at verse 22. Paul says, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. 
Now, I want to clarify what I mean by your future state. As believers, we already enjoyed the benefits of reconciliation. And we have to make a distinction here between positional standing before God and your practical uh, work in this life. Positionally, this is what you are already. Verse 22 is true of you. If you have been reconciled to God, positionally, this is absolutely true of you. Practically, you're still not there. Practically, you're striving for this. It is only in the future state when you get your resurrected body, it is when your position and your practice will merge into one. And that's why I put this under your future state. Now observe what Christ did for those who were alienated from God, who were hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. Verse 22 says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Now today is a Palm Sunday. Today we are starting this week when we are reminded of what Christ has done for us. He came for this week. He came into this world in order to die. When he entered Jerusalem that last time, he entered to go to the cross and to die. That's the reason why he put on flesh, so that he would be able to die on the cross and shed his blood in order to accomplish what we're talking about in this passage. He needed to die. He needed to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin so that there could be reconciliation between God and man. This is what this week is all about. This is what we are reminding ourselves of. Notice, in this reconciliation, God makes those who were his enemies his friend. Now notice, who's the actor here? Who's the actor? Verse 22 says, yet he has now reconciled you. God the Father is the initiator of this, and Jesus Christ is the mediator. Paul explains this further, the passage that we read earlier. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. This was the initiative of the Father, and God the Father was the initiator. Jesus Christ is the mediator because he is the one who has accomplished this reconciliation for us. Notice, secondly, the certainty of this reconciliation. It says here, yet he has now reconciled you. This is an accomplished act. There is nothing potential in the statement. Paul was not a provisionist. Jesus did not go to the cross to provide an opportunity for you to be reconciled to God. No, Jesus actually reconciled people to God. That's what he did. He went to the cross and he actually reconciled. He actually saved people. Now, notice that the verb is in the past tense. He has now reconciled you. He already did this. Keep this in mind because this will be very important when we get to verse 23. And notice that in order to reconcile you to God, you have to deal with that which brought separation between you and God, namely sin. We've seen that sin creates separation from God. Sin of the devil got him kicked out of heaven. Sin of Adam and Eve got him kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And this is precisely why Jesus came. You see, because God is holy, he requires payment for sin. You already heard Hebrews 9.22. Without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The sacrificial lambs 
that were brought by the thousands or millions, we can say, through the history of Israel, all pointed to that ultimate lamb who would come and offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. And that's why in our passage here, Paul says that he reconciled you. How? In his fleshly body through death. Now, we made this point again and again that Paul again says that Jesus was a man, contrary to Colossian heresy. He already said that in previous verse, verse 20. He said he made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, his blood, his flesh, all refer to the life which Jesus gave as a payment for sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he endured the wrath of the Father. That's why words like propitiation are so important for the gospel. Jesus offered himself as a payment for God. He was both the priest who was offering and he was the sacrifice that was being offered. And he offered himself to God in order to satisfy the just wrath of God against sin. That's why you have verses like 1 John 4.10, that in this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It was the father's love that compelled him to send the son. And it was the love of the son for the father that compelled him to be obedient to the father, to go and to offer himself as a sacrifice and as payment for sin. And notice that as a result of Christ's substitutionary death, he says, because of Christ shed his blood on the cross, you were made holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Now, positionally, this is what you are right now. Because God looks at you through the blood of Christ. Because Christ was the perfect and sinless son of God. And his righteousness was imputed to you. From the point of your conversion, God looks at you as if you live perfectly 33 years of perfect obedience to the Father without any sin. That's positional. But practically, you're growing towards that. Because even in this chapter, we will see that Paul says, the aim of my ministry and the aim of, we can say, our ministry here at church is to make sure that we grow so that our practice matches our position. If you look at the same chapter, verse 28, Paul says, this is my ministry. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We are working so that your practice would match your position. Now let's look at these three descriptions. First of all, he says he made you holy. He made you holy. In the previous verse, we said that alienation is separation from God. Holiness is separation for God. You see, to be holy is to be set apart. When we say that God is holy, we mean that God is so set apart from everything else that he's in category all by himself. When we are made holy, God takes us from the world and he separates us for himself. Now, on the one hand, we can say that holiness refers to our separation from sin. Christ took care of all our sins. Your past, your present, and your future sins have all been paid for in Christ. Never again will the Father look at you and judge you for your sins because he has already judged the Son. But while we're still in the flesh, we still sin. We still stumble. We still fall. And through this life, God by his Spirit is conforming us to make us holy. 
You remember the famous passage in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul was addressing the husbands? And he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he describes the ministry of Christ. And he says, so that he might sanctify her, so that he might make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such things, but that she would be holy and blameless in practice as well as in position. But not only holy, second, he says you were made blameless. Blameless means you're free from blemish. The word is used for sacrificial animals. In the Old Testament, when God commanded the Israelites to bring an animal, he says you should bring one that is without defect, complete, whole, without fault, without blemish. Now, what a thought. What a thought. He says, now that you are in Christ, God looks at you and you're perfect. All of your shortcomings, all of your sins, they have been overcome and they have been removed by the grace of Christ. Since Jesus is the blameless lamb of God and you have his righteousness, now God looks at you and you are blameless. And third, he says, you are beyond reproach. Beyond reproach, you are beyond accusation. No one can accuse you of anything because your record has been expunged. It's not there. And not only is your record, your bad record has been removed. You have been given the righteousness of Christ. The positive benefits of what Christ has accumulated through his life here on earth are imputed to your account. In Romans chapter 8, Paul asks serious of questions. And he says, who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who lived, yes, who died, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He says, Jesus Christ has paid for your sins and you have been declared righteous in the court of heaven. And because you have been declared righteous in the court of heaven, who's going to condemn you? And not only did Jesus pay for your sins, Jesus right now is actively at the right hand of the Father and he's saying, yeah, I paid for that too. Yeah, I covered that too. He's interceding for you. And that's why Paul can say, who will separate us from the love of God? Nobody. Everything has been taken care of. Everything has been removed. No accusation against you can stand. Not because you're so perfect, but because Jesus was perfect and his righteousness is imputed to your account. And notice the contrast between what you were and what you will be could not be more stark. And you might listen to this and say, Hey, Max, how do I know that this is true of me? Well, I'm glad you asked because this is where we get to our third point. And you would know that this is true of you if, if. There's an important if in verse 23. In verse 22, Paul says, he has now reconciled you. And in verse 23, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now this if at the beginning of this verse has caused many to stumble and to turn the meaning of this verse on its head. Notice what this verse does not say. The verse does not say you will be reconciled to God if you hold fast. One of the sobering truths in the Bible is that not all who profess to believe in Christ are actually saved. Jesus said in Matthew 7, in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, 
verse 21, that everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter it. And he said this, many, many, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then he said, I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I mean, just think about these words. I never knew you. Notice Jesus doesn't say, I knew you at one time, but then you walked away, so I don't know you. When Jesus says, I never knew you, he doesn't mean that, oh, I don't even know who you guys are, where you guys come from. No, he knows them very well because he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I know who you are, but I don't know you as my own. You were never my own. You see, what I want you to see in this verse, that your present state must be characterized by active perseverance in faith. What is Paul saying in this verse? He's saying that present perseverance is proof of your past reconciliation. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that verse 22 is only true of you if verse 23 is also true. If verse 23 is not true of you, then verse 22 is not true of you either. There must be fruit of repentance. Now when Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, literally, if you remain, present active verb, if in the present tense right now, you actively remain in your faith, you again is plural, all of you, all of you who profess to believe in Christ must right now continue in the faith. You know, the faith that he refers to here might refer to personal faith, but most likely he's referring to the objective body of truth, which he calls the gospel. He explains later on in the same verse what he means by faith. Notice later on in verse 23, he says, and not moved away. Moved away from what? Continue in what? The hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Notice this message that Paul describes here is something that he alluded to earlier in the book. In the introduction, he says, Epaphras came to you and he preached the gospel to you. You've believed the gospel. In this verse, he says, I have become the minister of the gospel. You claim to believe the gospel. You accepted the gospel. Now, in order for you to show that you were genuinely reconciled to God and now you are his friends, he says, you must continue to hold on to the gospel. Don't fall for any philosophy, for mysticism, legalism, or anything else. Don't fall for that. Yes, you're being offered that. But the, re the way you demonstrate that you have been reconciled to God is by your continuance in the gospel, that you continue to hold on to Christ and what he has accomplished on your behalf. Now, in case you're not convinced that this is what Paul is saying here, consider a few more verses from other authors of Scripture. Jesus, for example, in John chapter 8, he's talking to people who profess to believe in him. And he turns to that crowd and he says, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him. Notice they had believed in him. And this is what Jesus says. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. But what if you don't continue in my word? You're not my disciples. He's saying that my true disciples continue in my word. Now I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. 
couple of verses here I want to draw your attentions to. Hebrews chapter 3, there are many warning passages in this book. But just two verses that I want you to see, or two passages. In chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, the author says, Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house. And then here's the phrase that I want you to pay attention to. He said, Whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Notice again, he says that we are his house if in the present we hold our confidence and the boast and we do so until the end. If you don't do that, you're not your house. You're not his house. Skip down to verse 14. He says the same thing again. In verse 14, he says, for we have become in the past. This already happened. We have become partakers of Christ. And then you got another if. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Again, notice what the verse does not say. The verse does not say we will become partakers of Christ if we hold fast. No, no, no. He says in the past, you have become partaker of Christ. If in the present, you continue to hold fast, you continue to persevere in your faith. That's why I'm saying that reconciliation with God must be demonstrated by active perseverance in faith. If you have been saved, if you have been reconciled to God, there must be evidence of that today, right now. Now we look at this passage and we see our past day that this is who you were before your conversion. This is what you will ultimately be. This is what you are positionally right now. And this is what you ultimately will be in the day when you stand before God in glory. And you know that if today you continue in your faith. As we close, I want you to see that this passage stands here as both encouragement and as a warning. Encouragement because Paul says that all who have been reconciled to God will persevere in their faith. Nobody falls apart. Nobody falls away. Nobody just, some, something happens to them, and all of a sudden, they don't get to glory. God will not lose anyone. If you're in Christ, God promises and God guarantees that you will get to glory. You see, if God foreknew you, if he predestined you, if he called you, if he justified you, then he will definitely glorify you. No one falls away. And that's why you can have that assurance. You can rest in God. Now, hey, it's not just all in my power. I got to, you know, do everything in my power because if I don't do this, I'm going to fall apart. No, you do your part depending on the promise that God has said. Hey, you're mine. I have taken you. I have forgiven you. I've given you a promise of eternal life. And Paul says that all who have been reconciled to God will persevere to the end. But at the same time, this is a warning. This is a warning. Don't put your faith in something that happened 30 years ago or 15 years ago when you walked the aisle or when you prayed a prayer. Now the question that Paul is asking you today is are you today holding fast to the gospel? Are you believing today? Are you walking in faith today? 
You know, Bible knows nothing about past experience that guarantees you something in the future without anything in your present. No, everywhere Bible speaks of you right now persevering in order to demonstrate that what happened in the past was actually genuine. If your present life does not demonstrate dependence on the gospel, then who cares what happened in the past? You have no confidence. You have no hope. The only confidence you could have is that God is at work in my life today. And I am walking and I am believing the gospel even today. Now, there are people in the church, perhaps even some that you know, who were part of the church, but they're no longer walking with Christ. There were people like that in the times of New Testament. In 1 John, for example, chapter 2, verse 19, John says that they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would remain with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. There are some people who hang around the church for some time and then walk away. And John says that if you walk away, then you were never really of us. Because all who have been reconciled to God continue to walk in faith and persevere to the end. All who are genuinely saved continue in faith to the end. Finally, I want to address those who are watching this perhaps and you are still in verse 21. You are still separated from God. You are hostile in your mind and you are engaged in evil deeds. Now you know who you are. And I want to do what Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the passage that we read earlier. And Paul says, we beg you. We beg you. We ask you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. You see, in this passage, we see that God from his part, he loved you and, that he, and he sent his son for you who gave his life as a payment for sin so that if you believe, if you repent, if you confess your sin, you will be made, as the verse says here, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Do not put this off. You do not know how much time you have, but you have the offer of the gospel extended to you. Believe, trust, and be reconciled to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing work that you have done for us. Christ, we thank you that you have sacrificed your life. You have offered yourself as a payment for our sin. And because of that, we now stand holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. I do pray for any who have not yet bowed their knee before Christ. I pray that they would be reconciled to you. Save them. Bring them to yourself. We beg on behalf of Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.